Hello and welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 65. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined as always by Ben Badler. We're recording this podcast on October 26th, one day before the World Series gets started between the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Texas Rangers. And we're back after a week off. Uh, thanks thanks to me, not you, Ben. How you doing, man? Good. I think people deserve to know the truth, though, about why we didn't have an episode last week. I, think. I just I just didn't feel like talking to you. No, I think we should be honest here that you <laughs> you declined your mutual your end of the mutual option to uh, mm. to continue as co-host of yeah future projection and well you wanted to bring in someone um, to host the podcast alongside me and I I didn't want to share power so I, uh, I couldn't I, do that last week I had been trying to keep it under wraps uh, I mean I, I have the utmost respect for the work you do but. Uh, I, I have secretly been trying to bring in uh, a new president of of podcast operations above mm. you. I was, I was thinking about Josh and having just three hour yeah. episodes where he and I just talk about Jackson Cheerio and and birds Ethan probably. Salas. Oh, I don't although, know if I could. Although I could Josh probably would have just kicked me off the podcast in general because I was in Arizona and I didn't see any fall league. And I also didn't go to his favorite, uh, what is it, Mongolian Grill that he goes to all the time? He he does love him some Mongolian Grill. Yeah, so. Well, I, I guess you're talking about the the wonderful stay of the Miami Marlins, Ben. Do you have any thoughts uh, on, on Kim Ng uh, and the Marlins going separate ways, that whole situation? It feels like we've had a lot of front office talk on the podcast in in recent weeks and episodes, but I guess it's it's kind of that time of year, right? This is when... So when things happen, yeah, yeah, definitely uh, a lot of significant turnover in front offices and some managerial roles. And Dusty Baker sounds like retiring. Scouting now, department so. changes. There's some interesting moves there we could talk talk about as well. There's a lot of job openings always this time of year, but some pretty prominent names either changing teams or or leaving teams. Um, so yeah, it's it's that time of year. While while two fan bases are excited about the World Series, a lot of change elsewhere. Yeah, and and then of course the Marlins, the Marlins being the unusual situation where you have a GM who just led their t- led the team to the playoffs and is getting mm. not not a fired but like you know effectively demoted and then uh, what they had a she declined she declined her mutual option and mm-hmm. but there was you know it sounds like pretty good reason for. Uh, for doing so did that move yeah. surprise you at all or um you know i think so i don't necessarily i'm curious what you think about the current state of the marlins i think that they probably had a it's weird because they made the playoffs but in the context of them making the playoffs everyone was kind of talking about how it was a joke that they made the playoffs just given their run differential uh and and how they seemed like clearly the worst team in the field, but at the same time, they did have the best season uh, in Marlins franchise history since 2009. Um, so that is impressive. I think that we probably don't have many great things to say about the farm system, but they have developed some solid arms. I think they've made some moves in, in recent years that have made them be competitive, at least. Um, so they don't feel like a super great or terrible like the franchise doesn't seem to be in it's kind of in the middle of pack for me right now the move itself and kind of how it unfolded is a bit surprising 
the fact that clearly Marlon's ownership wanted to put someone above Kim Ng is weird. Um, considering what it, it seems like everyone thinks that she's done a decent job there. I don't think I have too hot of a take though. Like good for her for saying, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I, uh, just kind of respecting her own position enough to just say, no, you don't want to do that. But I don't know that I necessarily have too strong a take. I mean, I, I think they could, I, I think that she should have been given more time to turn the ship around, but I also thought that with Heim Bloom. So it's weird. Like both the Red Sox and the Marlins, I think their GM should still be in place. And then we have Padres fans who are like clamoring for AJ Preller <laughs> to just be fired and seemingly he can do whatever he wants and, and go through six managers in 10 years and uh, and he, and he's still around. Like again, I I think I want to see AJ Preller. I, I talked about this on a recent podcast. I, I want him around still. So I, I would be a good owner, I think, uh, for these GMs because I would give them all the time in the world to to figure it out. They'd have a lot of job security than me. Uh, but yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know the, the Marlins owner Bruce Sherman should be able to make a determination as to mm-hmm. whether Cam Ang is the best person to lead the baseball operations department. Kind of like walk through everything here so so they, they made the playoffs in 2020 which like for some reason people seem to just gloss over maybe because it was the a shortened season uh but mm. they, they hired her as the gm after the 2020 season so she's been there for three seasons first two seasons 67 wins 69 wins and then they made the playoffs this year but uh, you know they, they squeaked in 84 wins obviously that's good enough for the you know, the D-backs to get to the World Series. So, like, if you're in, you mm. have a chance. But at the yeah. same time, that's also two games above the uh, the aforementioned Padres and the Yankees who um, are, you know, have their fan base clamoring for their GMs <laughs> to get fired. And, like you said, they did it with a minus 57 run differential, which suggests that the, the underlying talent level on the team might not be as good as the final record indicates you know it's more in line with a 75 win team Hmm. Uh, a big part of that is the fact that they went 33 and 14 in one run games which was the best record in baseball in one run games it's kind of the flip side uh, of what we talked about earlier Hmm. uh, earlier this this year with the Padres so yeah yeah, I, I would say certainly like the positive side of the ledger um, have been the trades that the Marlins made. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, at the deadline this year, they traded Jake Eater to the White Sox, got back Jake Berger. Um, that was a nice upgrade for a lineup that really needed help. They traded Khalil Watson, who's a first-round pick. Uh, I hope <clears throat> hope he can benefit from a, a change of scenery, but uh, certainly is not trending the right direction for uh him as a prospect and the guardians in return sent them josh bell another mm. offensive upgrade for them down the stretch that that helped bolster their lineup um and and you go back a couple of years like 2021 trade deadline they send starling Marte to the a's they get back jesus lazardo Marte was an impending free agent lazardo was a, a 23 year old pitcher who had been a, a highly regarded prospect but hadn't really broken through yet as a, a successful pitcher in the big leagues. Uh, that that trade has been an enormous win for the Marlins. He's 25. He's one of the best, one of the better pitchers in baseball uh, under team control for a few more years. 
great deal. And then <clears throat> I, I think the most prominent trade is has to be the one that they made before this season when they got Luis Arias trade. Yeah, Arias from the Twins. Yeah, uh, I love I love him. How how can you not? You know, second straight batting title, five war season, two more seasons of of team control. Mm. It, it didn't come, you know, cost free. <laughs> they gave up Pablo Lopez, who mm. you know, three sixty six ERA, hundred ninety four innings, two hundred thirty four strikeouts, one of the best pitchers in the American League this year. Um, you know, like Lopez at the time had one less year of team control than Arias, so he would have he would have become a free agent after the 24 season, but Twins signed him to an extension. Uh, the Marlins have a couple prospects too, but uh, you know I don't think either of them has looked great this year. You're not a big fan of Byron Chorio or Jose Salas. Uh, I like a, I like a, another Chorio and I like another <laughs> Salas. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think just purely from the perspective of analyzing the decision of the Marlins GM, I, I do think it was a good decision. Mm. Like the, the GM has to work within the parameters of what the owner is willing to spend. So if Lopez is somebody you don't think you're going to be able to um, have the payroll space to extend and like as a gm you flip him for arise you got a great player with an extra year of team control and mm. uh the, the lineup was really an area that needed more help than than the pitching staff too yeah i think that that trade looks pretty solid for both teams i think at this point the other move mm -hmm. that i think is sneaky good that the marlins made this year in season i guess you you briefly mentioned it when you said they traded jake eater away but jake berger was pretty important for this team down the stretch getting into the postseason in the first place. Yeah. He had 214, 279, 527 with the White Sox after coming over to the Marlins. He was really tremendous offensively. It was a 303, 355, 505 slash line, uh, 860 ops, 130 ops plus, nine homers. Um, I think he was, was one of the key pieces to just get them a chance in the postseason in the first place. And I don't think anyone prior to that move would have been like, you know, Jake Berger is going to be a real key player here at the deadline. So a, a smaller deal, but definitely one that that bore uh, positive fruit for the Marlins. Yeah, yeah, they definitely needed some help uh, bringing up that lineup. And mm. they definitely made a couple moves in season this year that helped them there. And some, some of the other trades, like they traded J.J. Bleday to the A's for A.J. Puck. I think that one worked out well for the Marlins. Some other ones where the jury is is still out. The trade with the Rays, where they got Xavier Edwards, uh, infielder, center fielder, hit well in AAA, pretty minimal power, but he is one of their best prospects. Uh, they also did give up Santiago Suarez, who was the number six prospect in the Florida Complex League, number two pitching prospect in that league. So. We'll see. And, and then they traded for David Robertson, too, <laughs> at the deadline this year, which that one did not work out. Um, they they gave up Marco Vargas, <clears throat> the teenage infielder who's was the number five prospect in the FCL mm. this year, and, and a catcher, Ronald Hernandez, who's also top 20 in that league. That, that one could potentially come back to bite them, but we'll see. Yeah. I, but I would say in terms of trades, I think Aang made several moves that – uh, were on the whole ad advantageous for 
for the yeah. Marlins. You mentioned J.J. Bladé. I want to talk about him really quickly just in the context of the 2019 draft class. If you go back and look at that draft class, it's a it's a pretty phenomenal group already. I mean, Corbin Carroll uh, is maybe the, the name to talk about now, just considering he's the face of the D-backs at this point. Now in a World Series, already has 6.6 war under his belt. Uh, but really, the first 10 players, I guess technically nine, we're not going to count Hunter Bishop at 10, are all big leaguers. Every single player in that top nine grouping has been a positive war player outside of J.J. Blade, who at the time was solidly considered in that elite top six grouping that included, and I'm just going in order of, of how they were drafted here, and it was roughly mm-hmm. the order, I think, of our rankings too. But Adley Rutschman, uh, first overall, he's been worth 9.6 war over... Uh, 267 games. Bobby Wood Jr., 5.2 war. Great uh, sophomore season this year. Andrew Vaughn um, hasn't been great so far, but he at least has a positive war value. J.J. Blade, uh, negative 0.5 in 147 games. Riley Green, 3.3 war. C.J. Abrams, 3.5 war. Nick Lodolo, 2.7. Uh, and then Josh Young, 2.4. So everyone, uh, excuse me, I, I cut Shane Langlier's off, but he was selected ninth. He has also been uh, a positive war player thus far. Um, so basically everyone up in that elite group of the 2019 class has been quite good uh, or solid in the majors so far uh, outside of J.J. Blade. Do you think that he has a shot to turn it around or are you kind of just off the J.J. Blade ship at this point? I I would not bet on it. Um, yeah. I just don't see a whole lot of signs of life there. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, probably... Probably trending the same way with Jacob Berry too. So two mm-hmm. pretty, two pretty prominent uh, college hitters who are not uh, not panning out. It seems. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think part of this Marlins shakeup is DJ Svilik, uh amateur scouting director. He is out. It sounds like that decision to let Svilik go. It seems like it was one of the the key reasons why uh, Kim Ng decided to leave. It sounded like she wanted to keep him around in that role um he's been the scouting director for the marlins i believe the 2018 season uh was his first draft let me just make sure that's accurate yeah joined the joined the organization in november 2017 uh was director of amateur scouting in june of 2018 so that would have been his first year so what what are your thoughts and we can maybe go through some of the marlins drafts but it does seem like a consistent pain point for them has been uh, scouting and developing homegrown hitters. Obviously, the Marlins, I think, would be one of the the top teams in the game in terms of developing arms. But there are a lot of noticeable or notable misses, I guess you could say, for the Marlins picking high at the top of the draft. And, I mean, I, I would be much more excited about the Marlins moving forward if they had hit on a few guys. Let me just pull up some of their draft classes here. Let's go to 2018 first. Um, okay, so 2018, they picked 13 overall. They took Connor Scott in the first round. They took Osiris Johnson and Will Banfield in the second. Um, probably not what you want from those. Uh, and we Stop me whenever you want, and we can just kind of work through these. 2019 draft, obviously J.J. Blade, who we just talked about, was the number four overall pick, Cameron Misner. Uh, was selected 35. Then they took Nassim Nunez in the second round. Um, 2020, the Marlins were picking 
number three overall. They took Max Meyer in the first round. Then they had pick number 40. They took Dax Fulton uh, with their next pick at 61. They took Kyle Nicholas. Um, let's go to 2021. So that would have been Eggs first draft in 21. 2021 is Eggs first yeah. draft. Okay. So 2021, uh, number 16, Khalil Watson at the time. I thought it was an awesome pick. Expected him to go top 10. He fell. Um, signed for more money with the Marlins. Joe Mack, 31, um, high school catcher. And then in the second round, Cody Morse set. So 2022, uh, we, we still really haven't found a hit as, as far as I'm aware. 2022, Jacob Berry, number six. It seemed like immediately after he got into the pro ball, like everything looked a bit off. Uh, second round, Jacob Miller. Third round, Carson Milbrandt. So two high school pitchers after taking Jacob Berry. And then 2023, the most recent draft, they took Noble Meyer uh, with the 10th overall pick and then Thomas White with their second uh, pick. I guess if you want to look at second round, they took Kemp Alderman. So pretty poor drafts across the board in terms of results so far. I am really excited about Noble Meyer and Thomas White. And I think one of the reasons I was excited about it at the time is that like, the Marlins have struggled with hitters. They haven't struggled with pitchers. They got two of the best upside arms in the class in Meyer and White. But what do you think it is with the Marlins and hitters? What's you think it's a scouting issue? You think it's a development issue, a combination of both? It seems like they're the anti-Orioles uh, in terms of getting the most out of their their domestic hitters. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear. I think you, you evaluate the health of the entire organization, the up-and-coming young talent in mm. in the farm system. We, we ranked the Marlins 26th in our midseason farm system rankings yeah they only have two top 100 prospects yeah they're they're both pitchers noble meyer max meyer no no relation but um no no top 50 prospects uh, none of those like elite top 25 hitting prospects in baseball where you can mm-hmm. feel very comfortable banking on those types of players um and i i don't think it's a deep system either i mean we're going over nl east top tens right Mm. now and it's like going over the marlins top 10 by the time you get to the back of the 10 yeah you know there are some guys who are real deep like like dsl level who i I think are pretty intriguing but um uh, otherwise especially at the full season level it's it's pretty thin and it's not great at the top either and and certainly the lack of hitters stick out there's um, not like a one clear prospect in their system that I think you can have a a high conviction in them being an everyday hitter, like an everyday solid average or above average hitter, right? Like you're basically having to bank on those lower level players who have a long way to go. Um, I mean, their top ranked hitting prospects, probably some combination of Xavier Edwards, Victor right. Mesa Jr., Nassim Nunez. Like, do any of those hitters really excite you? I mean, Edwards and Nunez do a few things really well they're fast they can play defense not a lot of power with either of them um i mean mesa jr has some power i'm not sure how convicted you are in the hit tool there um and then yeah you you just really you had a number of years where you were picking very high up in the draft and blade specifically khalil watson jacob berry those just look like really tough misses at this point and if you even want to go back to connor scott like he hasn't really panned out either like i don't know who the last really good hitter 
that the Marlins selected is um, a struggle yeah, to find I, a good I, one. I like Xavier Edwards. He he did come over through mm. a trade. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Nassim Nunez here, superlative reviews about the glove, mm-hmm. um, but certainly a lot more risk as far as his ability to um, hit enough to stick around in an everyday role. So, yeah, there's the the lack of hitters, um, homegrown hitters, so you can feel confident projecting as a as a regular is um, is a big part of the reason they're in this bottom bottom third overall as far mm-hmm. as the farm system rankings yeah i did the braves farm system and we're, we're not fully through the process yet but just comparing their top tens i mean i think you can make a case to take the braves over the marlins i, I feel like they're relatively close you mentioned where they're at in our midseason rankings um they're not too far apart there but i for whatever reason i didn't go into it thinking the marlins were quite that bad but you really have a lot riding on risky profiles in Noble Meyer, Max Meyer, and Thomas White in this system. And again, I really do like both Noble Meyer and Thomas White quite a bit. I think they can be pretty good, but at the same time, you feel a lot better if you had some more bats coming along in the near future that, that you could rely on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Smith Shaver and Person Waldrop versus Noble Meyer and Max Meyer. Hmm. Yeah. That's like a, that's a reasonable, uh, conversation to be had there yeah and then after that after that it's basically like would you rather take a shot on a few more lower level pitchers or a few hitters with without much power like uh, most of the prospects after that first two for both these systems are either far off or have um a lot of obvious risk factors um so i don't think either are great but the braves do have the benefit of of already having a bunch of young homegrown hitters uh, who are kind of established big leaguers. So the lack of impact bats in the system, I don't think hits quite as hard as it maybe does for a team like the Marlins. So you just maybe still have more concerns about how they're going to produce runs. Uh, and they've also had some tough injuries with a lot of their really good pitchers as well, uh, which has hurt. Yeah. And then so after Aang and the Marlins split ways, the when the Marlins fired their, their director, Barry Jackson of the – Miami Herald had a, a tweet last week that said um, one of the, is that quote, one of the contrasts and visions between Bruce Sherman and Aang, we're told, is Sherman wanted to replace Zillick because Marlon's draft hasn't produced much with position players. Aang wanted to keep him, uh, and end quote. So if, if that is true and you're the owner looking at a farm system that's in the lower tier of baseball, and you want to make significant changes to the way uh, your team is drafting, but your GM is pushing back, that seems like it would be a pretty significant source of friction. Yeah, absolutely, too. And and if you're like the owner like us looking at the results, you probably wanted a lot more uh, with that and like seeing where these players have ranked pretty quickly after they got into pro ball and the reviews from pro scouts is quite a bit different than um, what a lot of people were seeing with these players pre-draft. I can see why you would be frustrated. I think it's possible to, to change strategy with, with the same people involved, but at the same time, like, I don't know who's responsible for the drafts here. Is it, is it Aang? Is it the scouting director? Is it, is it player development? Like it, it's impossible to truly know the answer to that without being inside the room and, 
and kind of having more information on what exactly has gone wrong with these players. But at the same time, like you're going to have a lot of misses in the draft. And it's a question of like, how, how many opportunities do you think um, is legitimate to give someone and, and how quickly is your ownership demanding results and changes in the farm system? I don't know. It's yeah. tough. I'm glad I, I'm glad I don't have that job. <laughs> yeah. I'll so, so I think the state of the farm system seemed like one, one area where ownership was, I mm. think, rightfully concerned. And then you, yeah. you talked about trades, where I think they did really well in trades. Mm-hmm. Um, free agent signings. They, they signed Avisal Garcia to a four-year, $53 million contract. He's still owed $12 million the next two years when he's 33 and 34 years old. And he has been really bad when he has been on the field that's probably just dead money Mm. Um, jorge soler signed a three-year 36 million dollar deal coming into the 22 season struggled his first year he was better this year uh b ref has him 1.8 fan graphs 1.9 war okay Uh, uh, gene segura two years 17 million dollars he was brutal this year Johnny Cueto, $6 million for his first year in 23 with a $2.5 million buyout uh, for the second year, which uh, is going to happen because they're not going to give him a, uh, the club option for $10.5 million. So that's <laughs> $8.5 million guaranteed. Just did not work out. Uh, you know, like Yuli Gurriel, uh, whatever, like it's a minor league deal, but they still gave him over 300 plate appearances this year as their first baseman, I think on balance, those those free agent signings have not worked out well for the Marlins. Obviously, you have to recognize like the reality is that the Marlins had an opening day payroll that was like, what, 24th, 25th, something like that in baseball. So yeah, 23, they're at right at like 22. So they're solidly in the bottom third. Um, yeah, there's there's limitations here. And, and they were able to course correct with some in-season trades to mm. trade for players like Berger and Bell but um, at, at the end of the day they, they finished 26th in baseball and run score uh, Park is is a factor there so like OPS plus 20th in, in baseball but um, I, I think that would be another uh, you know if you're the Marlins owner it would have to be another area of of concern yeah, I mean, I think we expected them to pitch their way to success more than hit their way to success, given the roster and the talent they had on the franchise entering the year. I mean, that's one of the reasons I picked the Marlins as like kind of a sneaky uh, team to watch out for preseason, just because I thought their pitching would be really good, and I thought the new balance schedule would allow them to get out of the NL East uh, a little bit more often and maybe surprise some teams, but. Yeah, if you're not, if you're you're an ownership group and you know you're going to be in the bottom half or the bottom third in terms of payroll, um, and you're picking high at the draft, you, you almost need the farm system to be a lot better than it currently is, if you want to, if you want to have sustained success, like teams like the Guardians and the Rays and what the Orioles look like they're about to go on a run doing, like you need to feel more confident in your homegrown talent. So I can understand where your frustrations might arise there. Uh, at the same time. The Rangers showed a, a pretty good strategy of getting better, and that's just to spend more uh, on marquee free agents and bring in talent in in every avenue that you can. So you can't entirely blame it on 
just the player acquisition side, I don't think. Oh yeah, no, it's it's a lot easier to say. Oh, the, the Rangers are so smart for signing uh, <laughs> Chris Young is so smart for signing Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager, right? Like, yes, it's pretty dramatic differences in payroll. I, I, mm-hmm. Look, you, you can take one perspective, which is to say, we've had a GM in place for three years, one winning season, and that might have been one where we got pretty fortunate to be there because we were yeah. just barely above five hundred with a, a run differential that's more in line with a 75-win team and a farm system where we have two top 100 prospects and in the bottom third of the league. Uh, we, we've made good trades, but to take the next step forward, you know, we need to be better at building from within with homegrown mm. talent, and we need to make smart free agent signings, and we haven't really hit uh, on those deals. So if, if we want to build an elite organization is is this the person we want running our our baseball ops department i I think you can look at it like you can look at the totality of her time as gm and and i could see the reasons for wanting to retain her as the leader of baseball operations i think that would be quite reasonable but i think Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of reasons where yeah i think it's also justified to want to look for new leadership too, if, if you have concerns about the organizational outlook over uh, over the next few years. What do you think is a reasonable amount of time to bring in a new GM to let them try and right the ship and establish a sustainable path to success if you're not starting off in a great place and you're also not a, a big market team? Like, like, what do you think is a reasonable amount of years to, to make that happen or at least show signs that you're heading in the right direction? I think it's I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I think it depends on each situation. I, I think in some cases you you having access obviously to all of the public information, but then all of the private kind of internal processes, knowing how the operation is working from inside, you might know within a year or two if you made a mistake. I mean, I, I think with a lot of hires, you, you might be able to tell even faster than that if you're bringing in somebody from outside the organization who, um, you know, you may have heard good things about and who interviewed well, but then you are actually working with them day in, day out, uh, and you're realizing, hmm, maybe we maybe we made a mistake. Um, but I, you know, I it would be hard to. <laughs> Uh, you know, have a, an owner make a, a quick decision like that, barring some sort of, um, you know, off field uh, conflict or, or something um, yeah. that um, well has certainly happened uh, <laughs> in, in recent years. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think three years is uh, probably on certainly on the shorter end of the window of what GMs yeah. typically get. It's no San Diego. No, that's uh, that's that's one of the more uh, 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 comfortable situations. Mm. It's, it certainly seems. Preller is like the fourth longest tenured GM, right? Or equivalent another million different titles now, uh, president of baseball ops, whatever it is. But I believe he's fourth in in baseball at this point, which is kind of crazy. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's probably not a lot of guys who stick around for no for a decade. No, not not too many at all. So, so you think basically, if you're an owner, the 
the process, you can get a pretty good idea of whether or not you'd like the process of how um, your your candidate who's running the team is doing quickly, even though it might take years to, for instance, determine whether or not not a draft was successful. Uh, I, I think maybe in in a more extreme case where you suddenly mm. realize, hey, we didn't know this person all mm. that well, but yeah. we, you know they were very qualified. A lot of good references. They interviewed it's, well. It's kind of funny to think of like sharp interviewers just sneaking into control of a big league baseball team. You you would think that the interview process was just so much more in depth and thorough for a job like that than like a typical job interview. But it is it's kind of funny to just think of an interview shark getting in there and getting control of a team and then just completely not living up to that interview. <laughs> Oh, I, I think a lot of people can rise up through the ranks because they uh, speak well, know how mm. to press the right buttons conversationally, mm. uh, or, or how to speak to an owner, tell them what they want to hear, oh, yeah. that kind of stuff. So, um, <clears throat> but uh, I mean, and we're talking about like short rope with a GM. The, the one thing is like the, the idea that this was something unique to Kim Ang that an owner would either fire a GM who made the playoffs or seek to put someone else above them. That's just categorically untrue. I mean, Dave Dombrowski, he won the world series with the Red Sox in 2018. Mm. They fired him during the next season. <laughs> the The blue Jays, they, they won the AL East in 2015. They go to the ALCS and toward the end of the season, they brought in Mark Shapiro as team president above Alex Anthopoulos, which diminished his decision-making authority. So Anthopoulos he did the same thing. He just walked away after the season. The Look at the Astros. Like the Astros hired James Click as GM in after they, after they fired Jeff Lunau. So he's mm. been there, or he was there for three seasons, 2020, 21, 22. They go to game seven of the ALCS his first year. They lose the World Series his second year, and they win the they won the World Series in 2022. I'm not saying he, like, built the team, mm. but he, he just won a World Series ring, and the Astros kind of did the same thing. They, they pushed him out the door. They offered him a one-year deal after he wins the World Series. So... There are other examples, but those were all executives who had just better on-field results, World Series rings mm. in a couple cases, um, who had to deal with the same things, too. So um, I think if anybody is saying that this situation is somehow uh, unique to her as an executive, it's just historically not not accurate. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point to put into context. It really makes clear that I have no desire, uh, and will never have any desire to do a job like this. Uh, running running a baseball team is a, a pretty cutthroat business. Uh, I can see the appeal and why people want to do it, obviously. But man, that is that is not something I would ever want to uh, have anything to do with. The, um, I, the 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 part that I do think the Marlins should get castigated for, though, is I thought the way that they tried to spin this to the public. Yeah, uh, in the 
So the, we've had no shortage of teams just doing a remarkably terrible PR job in the last year or so with various front office decisions, with all kinds of things. So that's not surprising in the least that they they tried to spin it in a way that'd be favorable to them, and also very easily proven wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, so they yeah they had the press release. The Marlin sent it out that said she wouldn't she would not be returning as GM. Let me see it here. All right. It, it, Although the club exercised its team option for her to return for the 2024 season, Kim has declined her mutual option. We thank Kim for her contributions during her time with our organization, wish her and her family well, yada, 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 a whole bunch of boilerplate platitudes of looking for a new leader and how committed they are to winning. Uh, I, I don't know what made them think. <laughs> it was a good idea to put out that statement because like eventually the story is going to come out that they wanted to bring in somebody above her uh, as the role atop the hierarchy of baseball operations. So she's the GM in name, but with a title inflation in baseball, it's not really the number one position of decision-making authority. Uh, and it took what, like a few hours for it to come out when Jeff Passan uh, tweeted out that, you know, the, the real situation. Um, so it, it just looks like a really, uh, like a pretty underhanded way to try to present the present it as a scenario where the Marlins like really wanted to to keep King Ang and she just mm. decided to leave when uh, the reality is they were hiring a new president of baseball ops over her and mm. effectively diminishing her her role. Yeah, it's it's a weird situation. I'm curious to see what happens next with Kimming. I'm also curious like how you view the job. Like, how favorable do you think the Marlins job is in the in the greater context of the league? Like, Craig Breslow was just announced. Uh, he's the new head of baseball ops for the Red Sox, former mm -hmm. uh, Cubs assistant general manager. So th that job's technically not open. But, like, how would you compare and contrast how favorable those jobs look from our perspective? Because it seems like both are fairly short leashes. You mentioned Dombrowski as another <laughs> name who got cut pretty quickly after real success with the big league team. I thought Hein Bloom was released uh, quicker than, than he should have been. Some so like, people would say the same thing about Ben Charrington. And yeah. Even like everything with Theo Epstein when he was in Boston too. So that's, mm. uh, yeah. So not... which job would you rather have? Uh, I mean, I... they're massively different markets. Obviously you would assume that you have a lot more ability to compete on the free agent market in Boston, uh, and your own compensation the, is probably higher. Yeah, I mean the <laughs> the attendance issues or or lack thereof that you have, and the like couldn't be two different markets, I think. But do you think there's a case that the Marlins job is maybe more appealing? Maybe you can make a case that easier path to win in the NL East. Uh, I think there are a few really good teams in the NL East, but the AL East is always a gauntlet, and it seems like with the Orioles and Blue Jays now too, it's it's even more so. So which of those two jobs do you think is more appealing as in the aspiring GM that you are, Ben? I think it just depends on your personality in part because those mm. those are two very different environments like Boston. Yeah. It's just it, it's got to be I mean, I've already lost most of my hair anyway, but like <laughs> it's it, it's got to be hard to retain it. Credit to Dave Dombrowski, I suppose for uh uh, for doing it but um man it's yeah it's it's a very 
not that like being the GM of the Marlins is like uh, some easy, low stress gig, but uh, <laughs> there's just, I, there's so much more media to deal with so much more. Like, I just think like the intensity of the fan base uh, in presumably Boston the is, expectations to win are a lot higher, just given the history of the franchise and the money that you're spending on the team year in, year out. And I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, theoretically, every team should have the same goals, but it's, in practice, it's not actually how it is. Yeah, I just, like I think there's just certain markets, whether it's Boston, obviously, like the Yankees, the Mets, the Phillies, where the the, the fans and the media are uh, pretty uh, unforgiving, <laughs> and certainly more so or less so, I guess, than a lot of other cities. So, um, you know, whereas like, you know, if you go to the Marlins, if, if you can take them and, and turn that franchise around and, and make them like the rays of the NL East, like you're going to be viewed ex- ex- an extremely favorable light because the franchise just historically over the last 20 years has, has just not had a lot of success. So, um, I, I, I think if like if you're walking into the situation in Boston, like like if you're asking me which team has the better outlook, obviously don't know who the GM is going to be mm. or who, whoever's going to be running baseball operations in Miami, but I, I think the Red Sox have a, a better farm system. Yep. Um, I, I think they've drafted better recently than the Marlins. Um, feel good about a lot of the people who are in place there and, and certainly the payroll that you have at your disposal uh, at your disposal and and your ability to spend probably to um, you know have the front office and scouting department and analytics R&D medical all that other stuff off the field to spend on your budget for that is going to be better with Boston than it's going to be in Miami too so like for us, like who has the best better outlook over the next three to five years i I definitely say the red Sox. yeah no i agree with that too i think it's it'd probably be like a very specific person who views the marlins as just a better job in a vacuum i think the kind of legacy making aspect of it if you succeed there um would maybe be the the biggest defining trait for that job over boston yeah Um, and and i think you have the ability like look unless you just really don't like the cold weather (laughs) part of it too yeah (laughs) um but it, yeah, and I could see too where, yeah, like at the same time in Miami, you're going in knowing that the only history with your owner is that he also has has a pretty quick hook <laughs> for a GM. But at the same time, he clearly is saying, "Look, like we want to bring you in and you know reshape our, hmm. uh, you know, at least our domestic scouting department, maybe some things in player development too." So uh, it seems like an opportunity to. Um, to, to bring in a lot of probably your own people and, and reshape some pretty significant departments mm. in in the way that you want to um, in, in, in a way that fits your vision for it, too. Yeah. You talked about kind of future outlooks for both these teams. I'm curious about just the NL East in general. Um, all of the, the NL East teams that made the playoffs are now done. Obviously, uh, the Nationals and the Mets didn't make the playoffs this year, but how would you view the NL East teams uh, moving forward in terms of just current core 
farm system, uh, I guess we can talk through like most optimistic versus least optimistic as it stands right now. Um, I view it as a pretty competitive uh, league, maybe like right under the, the top tier. I, I would think like AL East, uh, AL West maybe, and then NL East in terms of like competitiveness. Um, but, but where do you view the, how do you view this, this division, I guess I would say? I think if I had to stack them one to one through five over, you know, expectations for for the first, let's say, the next five year outlook. Yeah, I, I probably would put the Marlins last, which sounds a little bit strange to say about a team that just made the playoffs. But um, I think we just talked about all the reasons for yeah. concern there. Um, Braves, I think they have the worst farm system in the division, but at the same time, their big league core is young and under contract, like under team control for uh, several more seasons. And mm. they, um, you know, a pretty, pretty affordable costs too. Uh, some, <laughs> some are well, well below market value and mm. now you know there's you know they're they're getting past their point of international signing penalties so mm. uh, i think that's an area that's going to i'm still waiting uh, for i need i need a big international guy to pop and jump up in this farm system they definitely have a few interesting guys but i don't think anyone who's lit the world on fire to this point so them being back in that market maybe will yield a few samuel Basayos in the in the future yeah yeah they should have a good one january 15th this year with the uh, Perdomo. So, um, you know, I, I think things will, they're, they're certainly going to be in a better position than they were before. Mm. And then obviously their, their team right now is just really, really strong. So, yeah. So do you think um, that anyone has a case for a more optimistic outlook than the Braves in the near future, even given that you, let's say that you, you think Braves and Marlins are neck and neck. Let's say you think the Braves have the worst farm system neck and neck. I'm talking about in the quality of their farm systems today. Um, for any confusion there. Let's say the Braves have the worst farm system of the group. Uh, it seems like they have the best young core. Uh, I think that the Braves have shown to be pretty adept in most areas of the front office. Um, savvy trades, uh, ability to spend money. Uh, I think they draft well. I think they develop well, both both pitching and hitting. I would think that they're just the fact they've won the last six divisions and, and given their current core that everyone's kind of still there uh, and hitting their primes right now it, it would be hard for me to pick a team that i liked better in this five-year window moving forward regardless of the current farm system um do you think that there's a team that's close to them or is it like pretty clearly braves for you for me i i think it's probably braves i mean the team that just sent them packing maybe the, the team that consistently beats them in the playoffs you mean the Phillies yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I mean they have a I don't think it's a great farm system but mm. it's a better farm system than the Braves yes. they're clearly willing to to spend money um, and I think Dave Dombrowski has shown a knack for like I think his reputation is he goes in and he guts farm systems and i think certainly he's not afraid to trade prospects and trade away highly regarded prospects for enhancing the current major league team at the same time this is true in detroit and in boston 
Yeah, like I think like what like he traded away like a Eugenio Suarez and he turned out to be awesome, but like for the most part, a lot of the trades he made haven't really come back to to bite him. Yeah. And has have really helped his teams parlay those prospects into big leaguers and rings. So um I, I think it's I yeah, also uh, really like what they've done in the draft in recent years. I think they're a really strong drafting team i i like the fact that they seem fairly uh their their tolerance for risk is a lot uh lower am i saying that correctly they they are fine taking risky profiles than a lot of other teams it's paid off um bryson stott in uh 2019 is a solid pick i like the mick abel draft i like following up with andrew painter he was one of the best pitching prospects in baseball prior to getting hurt they take a lot of these maybe like super stuff, lack of command guys later in the draft that, that I don't love, but a Ryan Kirkering uh, was a fifth round pick and he just mm-hmm. looked pretty awesome recently, has a disgusting breaking ball. Uh, we both like the Justin Crawford pick from 2022. Gabriel Rincones, a third rounder from that 2022 draft, has been better than I expected him to be as a hitter, a ton of power. Uh, I like the fact that they went for Aiden Miller this year at 27. Just seemed like they take the best player available a lot of the time. They're not afraid of guys with with limited history, like a Devin Saltabon, who's already getting really good positive reviews, third rounder from this past year's draft. Tayshawn Walton, a fourth rounder, he had a pretty phenomenal debut in a very small sample size. So I really like what they do in the draft. I even like a couple of players further down, like Cam Brown in the 10th round. I think that's really good stuff for a guy who signed for 150000 Caden Hedinger is really interesting. Like I, I find myself really liking a lot of what they do on the draft side, and I do think they're one of these organizations who has a good... They seem to sync up what they're scouting for and what they think they can do well in player development very nicely. And just after having a few conversations with some Phillies people uh, who are talking about their process a little bit, uh, I'm fairly bought in on what they're doing. So I I like that side of everything that Philly's been doing. They haven't picked particularly high, but I think they've gotten some pretty good returns in recent drafts. And I think internationally, too, they had two of the better prospects in the Dominican Summer League, Mm. Starlin Caba, a shortstop. Yeah, he, you know, they're they're big, big international signing from this year. Really good glove, really good bat control, um, premium position player, defends it well. A lot of things to like there. Uh, Eduardo Tate from Panama, uh, basically played the entire season at 16 years old in the DSL, and he's one of the best uh, offensive catchers in that league. So you know, look, those are DSL guys like. I actually think they would have like some pretty good trade value. They also seem like the exact type of guys that Dave Dombrowski would be uh, comfortable trading away mm. if it can, you know, make uh, you know make the big league team better. And there's owners certainly willing to spend. So um, yeah, I would I would put them. I, I think their outlook over the next you know three five years is is extremely favorable right now. So, so you would have the Phillies kind of either two or one A, one B with the Braves. Uh, I'm curious how how far off the Mets would be because they obviously are willing to spend, and you love the new GM they have, and they're running the show. Um, they certainly have the resources. Maybe maybe you don't like the the older core of players. Uh, farm system seems solid. Nothing nothing crazy, but really interesting players up top. Even if it falls off a little bit, um, where would the Mets be in this conversation? I, I would go. I would go Braves, Phillies, Mets. Probably, I'm not. I'm unsure if I would put the Phillies two or three. The the, the payroll and the Cohen factor 
makes it uh, really tough for me, I guess. I, I don't have much confidence in which order I would go. Yeah, and they had a terrible year, but like, let's also not forget this team, the, or the Mets won a, they won 101 games two years ago. Like, mm. I don't think they're not that far removed. Still couldn't from... win the division. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, they were really good, and they've got a lot of talent right right now. Yeah, yeah, they have a new new GM and or whatever his title is now, president <laughs> of everything. Um, in in David Stearns, I think he showed uh, a lot of really good things. And the Brewers, by the time he left, they had probably I think they're what the number two farm system in our midseason rankings. And like Frelick has graduated. Uh, Sal Frelick has graduated since then, and, and maybe a couple others. But um, you know, you, you could see the young talent coming up through there, and, and just pretty consistent winning in Milwaukee. I think a lot of things to like there, and yeah, the farm system. It's it's. I think it's pretty good. Um, mm. Like they're they're top ten. If if you just compare it to other systems in the division, I mean, clearly the Nationals like. The Nationals have the firepower up top that gets you really excited. No, no doubt. Like you can't. They don't have a prospect who's as good as Dylan Cruz or as good as James Wood. Yeah, but I don't Um, think you can. I don't think you can find another system that really comes close to the quality of their one through ten. You know, in in the division. In the division, yeah. I I think they're pretty. I mean, I'll just scan over Phillies just to make sure, but. Yeah, I think it would be in terms of depth, one to ten for me. It would be. Mets number one, uh, then probably Phillies, Nationals, Braves, Marlins, some something in that order. But they they have a really solid top ten, very hitter focused. If you're afraid of like pitcher attrition, I think they've got a nice combination of pure hitters. They've got some power. They've got some athletes. They've got some up the middle types. Um, you've got stuff and command with Christian Scott. You've got just tons of stuff with Blade Tidwell. I'm curious how many of these players in their system are going to rank on our top 100 next year. It seems like it could be a decent handful. Yeah, I think it could be it could be anywhere from like three to seven. I mean, yep. seven I think is a stretch. Like, you know, it could be guys who guys would be at least be in the 150 mm. range. Uh, like clearly, I think Jet Williams obviously belongs, and then it's like uh, kind of like pick your flavor with your you know, strengths and weaknesses of guys like uh, Ryan Clifford or Drew Gilbert or, or, you know, Ronnie Mauricio was prospect eligible still. They yeah. traded for Luis Angel Acuna uh, as well. Um, so, you know, three guys who came over in, in trades with Gilbert mm-hmm. and Acuna and, and Clifford. Um, so I, yeah, it's, yeah, I would agree. It's, it's a, I wouldn't put it in like the elite category because I don't think they have a, a guy like that although maybe you think jet williams is that like <laughs> I, that i'm guy, but... fairly confident that i i'm going to be one of the highest on jet williams on our staff and maybe just in the industry in general but i wouldn't quite put him in that sort of elite dylan cruz uh, james wood type no even though i do like him quite a bit yeah so i i think they have the ability to turn things around pretty quickly um whereas like the nationals so the it's Nationals a very, are interesting. Very unusual uh, <laughs> rebuild happening, um, and it's it is so it's so dependent on those prospects who they have at the very very top mm. of the system, which are you know 
the elite, most valuable players or prospects in the game when you have somebody like Dylan Cruz and James Wood and then, you know, Brady House certainly fits mm. into the top 102. But, like, for for a team that is in in the midst of a rebuild, I, I would like to see some more depth because you get i mean like even toward even once you get past the top i don't know five six guys like you got some guys with some pretty significant holes in in their game that Mm -hmm. they're going to have to address typically if 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 things are going well you're not replacing your you know scouting director uh you know changing international well, this is actually a reason that I, farm I think directors. this, maybe this is me zigging where you're zagging, but I think you, if you're a Nationals fan, I would be pretty excited with the state of your scouting department now. I mean, the recent moves that the team has made, bringing in Brad Siolek, who led the Orioles uh, recent drafts. Like we, we have praised the Orioles draft process ad nauseum on this podcast mm-hmm. over the last five years or so. And granted, the Orioles did have the benefit of picking very high in the draft consistently. The Nationals won't be able to do that to the same extent, just given the new rules of the draft lottery, given how much uh, the Nationals spent. like They can't pick higher than um, 10, I believe, this year, just given the fact that they got a, a lottery pick in the first year. So that might hamper them a little bit. But I have to imagine, just if you've seen what Brad Siolik has done with Baltimore, you'd be excited about what he can do with Washington, um, they do have the studs. And if you were going to have a very top-heavy farm system or very like quality depth farm system, I would rather have the top-heavy farm system that has the Dylan Cruz, the James Woods of the world that, that have a chance to be these franchise pieces. Uh, it, it does seem like the Nationals have always been this sort of stars and scrubs model, or at least in recent years they have been. But I would be encouraged. I think they've got a lot of tools, a lot of upside, a lot of firepower in the system. You do need to layer on more depth and you do need to probably get um, some more pitching in this system and and just show that you can bring these hitters along uh, in the minor leagues and and continue their development like a team like Baltimore does, like the Dodgers do, like the Braves have done. Um, But I think they're in a decent spot and they're clearly a team that's willing to spend when they're ready to compete. So I don't know if it's going to be this sort of drawn out rebuild i don't know that it can be in the current system i I hope that uh the the orioles and the astros rebuilds where you just bought them out for years i hope that's a less viable path and if if the draft lottery is enough to deter that then i'm all for it but uh i'm i'm fairly optimistic about what they can do in the near future but i'm also exceptionally high on dylan cruz and Maybe that's that's all it takes for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, like obviously they have players who won't qualify for the on a prospect list, like C.J. Abrams or Mackenzie Gore. Where, where are you at on Abrams? Because he's always lumped into that tier. I think he did some good things, but do you expect him to be a, a player who can take a jump and be like an above-average regular? Because I might be a little more pessimistic than that. Like, what do you think? His he is young and he's got speed, but. I don't know what sort of like hitter we're ever going to get with him. I, I think he's a, I think he's an above average defender right now at a premium position. Mm. And he put like a close to a league average OPS up this year. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's already, I mean, you could say he's already above average right now. Now that will depend on his, you know, if if the defense wasn't just kind of like a one-year type fluke, which I don't think it is. I think he's made some significant defensive strides um, over, over the last couple of years to get to where he is right now as a shortstop he's showing more power too than i than i expected for him especially yeah. 18 for home runs who's, yeah at 22 years old I, I think there's still i think there's still some more room for growth offensively based on what we saw mm-hmm. from him throughout his career in the yeah. minor leagues i i am i yeah i think he could still i think he's already in above average player he certainly performed like one this year and i think there's still another significant level of growth yeah. potential ahead of him um if his if he can go from you know a, maybe a tick below league average offensively to uh to you know an above average hitter too i, I don't I, I think that's a possibility for him yeah i think i'm probably just lower on his his defense at shortstop i'm also just more skeptical about like the overall upside as a hitter moving forward he is young still just 23 years old so it wouldn't shock me if he took a massive step forward but i mean i don't think he is going to have a ton of power he he doesn't get on base at, at a clip that i would like for a player with his sort of contact skills and speed i mean he is a good base runner uh, i think he has some tools to be a good defender but i just I don't know. I'm, I'm more towards the skeptical side. I think I have long been uh, more towards the skeptical side with him. I, I just wish he would take a few more walks. I think I you're holding. I, I think you're. I think you're holding him up to the standard of he's not Bobby Witt Jr. from there's, the same draft class. There's definitely some of that. There's certainly some of that that's hard for me to entirely get out of my mind because there are constant comparisons between them. Um, but I just don't see the sort of impact. That Bobby, like, if you don't want to compare him to Bobby Wood Jr., that's fine. But I, I don't think he has that sort of power. I don't think he is the defender that, like, I, I think he could be an average player. And you need average players to win. Uh, but it, I think if you're if you're relying on C.J. Abrams to be, like, the driver of your offense, I would be a little skeptical. And, I mean, fortunately, I think there are many better hitters in the system now that will be able to kind of shoulder that load. But it's just kind of interesting to think through where where we're at with CJ Abrams now and I guess I'm I guess I'm uh, raining on his parade here and you're you're a little more optimistic yeah but you're more optimistic on uh your guy Mackenzie Gore or? uh yeah I think I think so I'm probably still more optimistic on him um I don't know I I don't think like it would be surprising if he was able to just turn into a frontline starter now at this point but i mean he was pretty solid this year he's about league average took the ball 27 times 4.42 era good strikeout numbers strikeouts. yeah yeah so i think so i mean he's still 24 both these players are young like like i would be more i would be more confident in mckenzie gore being like a pivotal player in a, comp- a competing nationals team than cj abrams if we that. talked about the leap that jesus lazardo made mm. I, I could see him making that same kind of jump from like a good prospect or a, or a really good prospect who mm. was like okay early on in the big leagues or even struggled uh and then yeah. took a huge leap forward just with a couple more years under his belt the control the step forward with his control i think is a really positive indicator from Kinsey gore um it's more than a walk uh per nine better year over year 
Um, I, I would have to dig into his numbers a little bit more to see what, what, what I think about this stuff at this point. Um, but yeah, I think he could be a really solid mid-rotation left-handed pitcher that has a lot of value. Yeah, I, I think overall, I think the Nationals realize that, yeah, like it's great that we have Dylan Cruz and James Wood, but like, you know, yes, we have the, we have the number two overall pick in the draft and we traded away Juan Soto. So like, <laughs> we, we should have some some studs yeah. at the top of our Absolutely. list. And the deeper down you go, there's just a lot more players who, you know, like, I ho- hopefully this is just like an injury issue with Robert Hassel. That's what I was going to say. If, if Robert Hassel year. and or Elijah Green hadn't just completely had whiff seasons and, and whiff in more ways than one with Elijah Green maybe you would feel a little more optimistic. But, I mean, this again, I think it's the nature of, of these moves. This is why I routinely really like the star big league side of these packages because as good as a prospect is at the time when you trade them, you never really know what can happen. Most of these guys are not going to be as good as like their potential um, and their scouting reports makes them makes them seem like they can be. Like It's just the case that most of them won't hit those. But yeah, I mean, for Elijah Green and Robert Hassel, both uh, at previous points, top 100 prospects, hard to make cases for either of them being top 100 prospects now. Um, how do you view them at this point? And like, what is your, I, I guess, how, 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 much, how much has your confidence been dampened for both of these players and how much do you think they can bounce back in future years? I mean, Elijah Green's tools are as good as anybody uh, or among the best in baseball, mm-hmm. but you just can't swing and miss as much as he does. Um, even if he cuts it down, uh, it's going to have to get cut down even more. Um, yep. So we, you know, I think we took, uh, uh, got pushback from uh, not like scouts or anybody <laughs> necessarily in the game, but uh, just fans earlier when we were uh kind of raising some red flags earlier on about mm-hmm. the swing and miss there but i think his that's... his miss rate this year was 45 percent. this is just overall miss rate when he when he swings the bat how often is he missing almost half the time which yeah. is insane and so... i also will will say this i was on the positive side when elijah green was coming into the system i was talking about putting him right up there with james wood just given his prospect pedigree, what he was doing as an underclassman on the same team with James Wood. And I remember having some conversations with people in the game, like, how do you view these two? And um, for for many people giving me feedback, it was like, look at what James Wood has done in pro ball. The adjustments he's made has, have been really impressive. Like, still quite a, a bit of a gap between this guy who has flashed all these tools, but needs to kind of go out and prove it. And I think that's just a good lesson in, like, it's easy to dream on these guys when they're in high school and they've yet to be really challenged. Um, and, and just how important it is to actually go out and perform in pro ball, uh, to just give some confidence that you can access the, the loud tools that you have. Good lesson for me to learn. Yeah. I think even just beyond those players, it's, it's also just like, where are the kind of the later rounds picks who are yeah. coming through to where it's, it's a little bit lighter. Um, where in other organizations you you know you see like the Grand Poly in San Diego or um, you know just other players where yeah okay we were able to or, or Ryan Kirkering right like that's mm. just hasn't been the case uh, when you kind of look up and down their their top thirty right now 
Yeah. For a while there, they were taking these like very risky pitching profiles early on in the first round. And I think a lot of those drafts maybe didn't help the farm system like Jackson Rutledge, although he, he got into the big leagues and, and pitched a decent amount of innings this year. But uh, I think 2018 was Mason Denneberg. Uh, he never really turned anything, has dealt with a lot of injuries. They took Seth Romero, uh, who had all, all sorts of red flags. Like they have taken few risky profiles on the mound uh, i'm trying to look through their recent drafts and see if there are any guys who have popped in later rounds and kind of struggling to find any impressive names like it's a lot of just misses deeper in the drafts and i guess you, you for all the players that we're really excited about brady house dylan cruz um, james wood like still haven't made it to the majors yet Johanny mraz i think strong debut um, so yeah, you kind of need to hit on a few of these guys later on, even if they're just more role player types, but people who can impact the big leagues in some capacity. The anti-tanking measures in place too now are not well timed either for them. Not if you're a Nationals fan, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's good that you are picking high in 23 instead of 24, just given the talent that seems to be shaping up in those drafts. So mm-hmm. I mean, kudos to them for getting. Uh, the guy that we had as the number one player in the class. I I think we're already seeing the prospect fatigue with Dylan Cruz. And I think part of it is just because Wyatt Langford was so good, but Dylan Cruz is an extremely good prospect. Are, are people, no, are, I don't think people are down on Dylan I th- Cruz. <laughs> I don't think they're down on it. I have seen, well, I will say this. I have seen many more people calling his double A stint, which was, how many games was it this year? Calling games. Him, yeah, tw- his 20 games in double A, a quote hiccup and like getting a little worried while Wyatt Langford is hitting 10 home runs in his pro debut than you would expect so I just want to pump the brakes on any sort of fear or concern about Dylan Cruz if you're just looking at his 85 plate appearances in double a this year like he's still he's a pretty good prospect yeah it's fair to be fired up about Wyatt Langford I mean yes. we talk about who has the best if anybody can top the Nationals one two with Cruz and James, and James Wood. Wood. The Rangers might have a case now with mm. Wyatt Langford, and some people are going to have to recalibrate on Evan Carter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, including, us, including me. Including us. Who yeah. I, I think I've been like one of the <laughs> highest people on Evan Carter. And like, you know, like I'd say he was like a top 10 prospect, whereas other people might say like uh, closer to like 20 or something. It's, you know, I think. Yeah. Going out on a limb there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But (laughs) but even still, like, man, like what he's done, just what he's done since he got to the big leagues and and the power that he's hit for, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, he's hitting in the three hole for the Rangers in the in the in the World Series. (laughs) Yeah. And. Like he's got to be a top ten prospect now, and like him versus Langford, I don't know, man. That's yeah. I was very adamant. This was prior to Evan Carter going up. I was like, wow, Langford, he's got to rank ahead of Evan Carter. Just way more impact, way more impact. Great hitter, like similar to Cruz overall as a prospect. But the the power is the differentiator. The power is the separator here. But yeah, to your point, I mean, twenty three games in the big leagues in the regular season, five home runs, three hundred six, four thirteen, six forty five. Definitely not a slugging number that that we would have expected or I would have expected for him. Let's pull up his postseason numbers. He's hitting 308, 449, 538 in 12 games, one home run, six doubles, 
He can get after it on the bases, plays a good defense. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just a really well-rounded profile. I mean, <laughs> Wyatt Langford's knocking on the door already, so it will be a really interesting conversation uh, to have over this offseason. Are you leaning one way or another for Carter versus Langford? I don't know. Right, right now, I'm just thinking how like how pissed Duke must be that like <laughs> they, they're like we could have had this guy hitting in the middle of our lineup. Right oh now. my god, It'd be ridiculous. I think, uh, I, I, you know, I love James Wood, but I might take if I had to, t- and I love Dylan Cruz too. I might take the Langford Carter duo over the Cruz Wood duo, just because with I mean with the Rangers, you obviously have the the major league production of Carter. It's not a ton of, it's not a ton of data, but it's some. And I think even prior to Evan Carter um reaching the majors you maybe could make the case that you had more conviction in him being like a high quality hitter whereas you could you could pick some nits maybe in james wood uh with his swing or with the length uh to the path um but yeah it's it's a fun conversation to have as we talk through it here yeah i think they're all four of those are going to be top 10 prospects mm. for at least at least for me like i'm not sure I, I can't see a scenario where they are out of it but i, I probably would have Man, of that group, I think I would have James Wood fourth, mm. but then like Cruz, Cruz, Langford, and, and so I, we I, we talked about a group of players who are in the conversation for number one prospect. Like, if we're talking about Evan Carter in this capacity, do you think he's in that tier, or do you think he's just kind of right outside of it? Like, has the big league performance done enough to move him up that high for you? I mean. Number one, I I would still have Jackson Holiday, number yeah. one. So thinking, it's, through- and we haven't like, I mean, geez, like I I think this is a stack. <laughs> this is just gonna be a stack top ten because we haven't talked. I mean, we guess we did talk about Churio and Ethan Salas earlier, and then like, mm. oh yeah, like Junior Caminero, too. <laughs> just mm-hmm. like an incredible. And Paul, Paul Skeens will be in my top ten. I know that. Like at at some point, I'm gonna run out of space, and someone's gonna have to get bounced out, like Jordan Lawler. Mm-hmm. he's going to probably be in it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like Salas, I'm going to really have to dig into Salas because as we're talking about it right now, I like all these players more. And I think it's probably just like, like I'm, I'm scared of Ethan Salas a little bit more than some of these other players. More risk. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. It is a really fun top 10. Yeah. I, I think, cause there are some years where we're talking about, Oh, it's like this elite top three. And I, you know, I'll, I'll still have Jackson Holiday number one, but mm. this whole this whole top potential top ten, the way it's shaping up, I think is extremely strong. Do you think there are three comparable players to the Bobby Wood Jr., Adley Rutschman, Julio Rodriguez trio, or the what was the trio with Ronald Acuna, uh, Shohei Otani, Vlad Jr. Vlad Jr. Do you think we have a, a trio? that good or do you think it's a little less but maybe more quality depth right behind because that's how i would envision it like i don't know if you have three although i i mean if you wanted to make the case for jackson holiday jackson churio and like a dylan cruz i I don't think it's crazy i i don't know it's closer than i expected it to be i would say yeah i think it's it's pretty close in just the volume of players in that Illy group is pretty mm-hmm. pretty special. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Okay. Well, we've talked through four teams. Do we need to spend more time on the Marlins for this kind of outlook conversation that that veered off into a just a uh, kind of lusting over all these players in in the top of the the minor league system? Um. Yeah. I mean, we, we kind of hit on the strengths and weaknesses there. Um, so, how far is that, the gap for the Marlins at five? If you view it as a gap. Like, like, do you think the Nationals are closer to the middle of this grouping of teams or the bottom, I guess, in terms of outlook for the next five years? Like, do you think they're closer to the Phillies or Mets? And also, what's your order? My, my order would be Braves, one. I think I'll go, I'll go Phillies, two. Mets, three. Nationals, four. Um, Marlins, five. Yeah, it's kind of boring when we. It is kind of boring when you when we agree. Uh, I, I would. I was going to say it's kind of boring because it's almost like the results of the division this year. <laughs> no, the well, the Marlins went to the playoffs this year. They they won as many it's games. Not, it's not as, too. It's not too crazy though. It's like it's not, like that. Champions. That order doesn't feel like oh, like I'm going out on a limb here and making some crazy take. It feels kind of just like feels a little boring. We're we're known for our crazy, crazy hot takes. So. Mm. Um, yeah, Miami. I mean, again, like they're they're in the playoffs this year. I think there's a lot of still regression risk mm. for them uh, going forward. Um, they need to improve their lineup. Uh, some, you know, ha- having a full season with Yuri Perez is <laughs> reason for. Mm-hmm excitement um the pitching staff uh, even with some injuries now it's still a good rotation um hopefully xavier edwards can come up and help or or maybe they can make some you know whoever comes in can make some more trades the way kim ang did to shore up some some holes Mm. that they have but then also like how much is ownership going to spend relative to that's these other that's teams. what i was gonna that's, say that's the uh, biggest like we can talk about process and scouting and player development and player acquisition but every other team in this division has shown a willingness to spend at, near the top of the league i think three of the teams currently this year have payrolls in the top 10 the nationals have clearly been willing to spend when they're competing the Marlins have not ever shown a willingness to spend. And until they do that, they're just going to be handicapped and it's going to be harder to compete. You can't just be the Rays because you want to be the Rays or everyone in baseball would be operating with that model. So like until we can we can get rid of our GMs or hire over our GMs as long as we want. But until you actually want to commit to competing at a high level with a, a strong division that's willing to spend like – all of it is more, it's, it's a lot of eyewash if you're not actually going to put some money there and, and try and commit and keep some of these players that you that you actually do develop, keep them around and keep building around them. Like when they start spending, maybe I'll take them more seriously. It does seem like it, like High and Bloom seems like he would be a good fit here yeah. given the success you might need a job. he had in Tampa. If you're High and Bloom, would you go take this role in Miami with someone hired over you? I, this is a stupid question because neither of us. I don't. Time I don't think it. they would hire somebody over a new. Like I think. I think they're looking to bring in somebody who's going to mm. lead baseball ops, and then that person will hire people underneath. Well, who knows what they're going to do? I don't. 
<laughs> well said well said yeah. all right do you have any world series thoughts we're, we're gonna get this podcast out before the world series officially starts you guys will have all day to listen to this before we get rolling on friday i think it's an 8 p.m eastern time start um a lot of chatter about this world series um and the lack of ratings it might get uh, a lot of postseason format chatter in baseball a lot of upset fans of good teams who got bounced early a lot of takes going around. Uh, so what are your World Series takes, Ben? What do you have to say uh, beyond being excited about Evan Carter and Corbin Carroll playing on the big stage, which is maybe what I'm most excited about? And and Gabriel Moreno, too. He's former, been good. Adolis Garcia, those four have been awesome. Yeah, I I love watching this Diamondbacks team. Mm. Yeah, they have Corbin Carroll. They have Gabriel Moreno. Alec Thomas, these guys are all fun to watch. Mm. And I also like that they are just assassinating every conventional narrative about the playoffs because what was it? The the Phillies Braves series in the NLDS. The people are picking the Braves to win that series. And then after the series, it's well, actually it's it's not about the regular season. The Phillies are the team that's built for the postseason. They've got the clubhouse vibes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Schwarber, he's a clubhouse leader. Mm. Castellanos, Harper. The fan guys, base is going to will guys them to are, victory. Yeah, they're clutch hitters. And then the D-backs roll in, bounce them. Like, if yeah. you think you need to roll into the playoffs <laughs> hot, like, they went 32 and 39 <laughs> in the second half. They won 84 games in the regular season. Mm-hmm. Like, don't want to harp on it again, but it's like two more wins than the Padres and the Yankees, who are, you know, supposedly these teams in turmoil. And and they also had a negative run differential uh, with like a, I think their Pythagorean record was more in line with an 80 win team. So uh, postseason experience, not something that a lot of players on this team have. And yet they... They sweep the Brewers, they sweep the Dodgers, and then they take down the Phillies, uh, and they're in the World Series. So uh, it's been that's been a fun team to watch. So it, it feels like this podcast is just Diamondbacks fans at this point because they're the narrative killers, right? That's what I'm getting from you, Ben. You're really excited about them. Not a, not a word about the Rangers, but you're really excited about the D-backs. I'm with you. I like I like that we killed all these narratives. Oh, the it, Rangers are are a fun team to watch too. They are fun. I like that series against the Astros like largely thanks to <laughs> Adolis Garcia's mm. uh flair for the whatever you want to call it is yeah uh, highly highly entertaining but you know uh, the the D-backs shouldn't be in this position in the World Series and I don't even think the city of Phoenix should exist that that city what? that city <laughs> say that again <laughs> it is insane to me that we built a city there in the middle of the desert have you been there recently Ben well, I've been to Phoenix, yeah, but I, I, I'm fine with it existing. I'm fine what? with it existing. I'm more joking that like it is insane to me that we we built a city there given the heat. It's it's insane to me how hot it is. I'm walking around at like 11 and 12 at night. It's 100 degrees, Ben. How is that even possible? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I also didn't realize how sprawling and massive Phoenix was. You're telling me we can't get a bunch of eyes, a bunch of retired people in the Phoenix area to tune into this World Series? Dallas is huge. You can't tell me Texas is not a big market. I don't understand some of these concerns about the TV ratings of the World Series. 
but I also generally just don't care about those. So yeah, I don't have why. concerns, but I also think it's probably just true. Like uh, <laughs> if we're just being honest, like that's not going to have as high a ratings if you have the Yankees or Phillies or the Red Sox or Cubs. Or... Do you think that's, do you think that's some problem for baseball when this happens or no? No, but I also understand if you would prefer to have a more condensed playoff field and mm. put more emphasis on the regular season. Like, yeah, I, I would, it would be the same thing if the if the Yankees got in as an 84-win team and then went, mm. like the Diamondbacks are 9-3 and three in a 12-game stretch, all all against very good teams. Like, they deserve a ton of credit for it. But yeah. The Yankees could probably do that too if they got it. I'm sure like Yankees fans generally don't agree with that <laughs> based on the way their their season went. But you know, any you know, like I don't I don't think the D-backs are like a significantly better team um, than like the Yankees or the Padres or or the Marlins who got bounced quickly mm. too. Like they are just as capable of going on that run. But if if people would prefer to have more emphasis on the regular season where like, you know, you've got to win at least 90 or close to 90 games to get in. I think that's a yeah. reasonable perspective. I was have. trying to see if the A's won nine games, nine games in a 12 game stretch at any point this season. I can find it, but close they got a seven. So even the A's can win. They won seven in a row. I think that was their best streak this year, uh, but I couldn't find nine and 12. But yeah, I think your point is good. Yeah, look, like there's just like a, a luck skill continuum where people you... people trying to balance like what it takes to be a good team in the regular season versus what it takes to win the World World Series. Like the fact that those two are not aligned, you don't get the same answers there. Really, just breaks a lot of people's brains, and they don't like that. Um, there are ways you could change it. Uh, I personally would just like longer series overall in baseball. I almost think in some ways like the NBA's postseason and MLB's postseason formats should be flipped. Like the NBA has notoriously long series and I think true talent wins out much quicker in basketball than it does in baseball. So like I would prefer however many teams you want to have in the division, I would like the postseason game to be more similar to the regular season. But until, until the postseason is formatted it in such a way that is trying to replicate the regular season. I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is. And what it is, is chaos in a lot of teams who you don't expect to be there at the end of the day, being there. And I think regardless of what team gets to the World Series, there's always something that is going to be fun to watch and something that's exciting to see. Um, and we'll find narratives every year regardless. But I'm just trying to embrace what it's giving us and, and try and separate in my mind what the regular season tells us versus what the postseason tells us. And one is more just fun and chaos and just celebrating baseball as a, uh, <laughs> like a, a, as a fan of the sport, not necessarily a team. And the former I think is a lot more telling about team quality. Yeah. I think that's the most common complaint about March madness is mm. all of the upsets that, <laughs> that occur. During but everyone time. wants, everyone wants their own March madness though, because it, it gets casual fans invested. It gets a lot of eyeballs. People like to see those upsets. Uh, but yeah, if you're designing a format that's that's trying to show the best team at the end of the line, that's not what you would create. You would you would do something else. So it's just different goals. Yeah, the regular season. I don't think you need to mock up a playoff format that tries to emulate 
mm. the regular season, but it's just a matter of like where you set the bar to get into yep. the tournament. And once you get in, like, like you could do, there, there, there just are games you could play. Like if you flip a coin, right? Like that's entirely random. It's pure chance. And then there are other games you can play that are almost entirely skill based. And mm. in in the baseball playoffs at this point, <laughs> if you can't acknowledge the role that chance plays in these short series events after what we've seen in the you're saying baseball is a little year. more little more rock paper scissors than chess. <laughs> well, like there's just there's a on that luck skill continuum where mm. you have you know these are all like pretty good teams. Yeah. in the playoffs right now <laughs> anybody once you're in i think has a uh, a chance i will say i i have been very impressed watching tori lavello manage the yes. postseason for the d-backs i think most of the credit should uh, he probably agree go to the players on the field you should go to corbin carroll first and then lavello second maybe if you want yeah, but he's he's clearly well prepared, and he's yeah. willing to make decisions that are not going to be popular with the uh, conventional-minded observers. But he understands he understands the reality of the third time through the order of penalty for pitchers and how it applies to the pitching staff that he has to manage. You had Brandon Fat who was dealing. Right through five and two thirds in game three, he pulled him, and they the bullpen allowed one run, and the rest of the way they held on for a two one win. Game six, he pulls Merrill Kelly after he had allowed only one run in five innings. They they use four relievers to hold the Phillies scoreless the rest of the game. Get another win. Uh, game seven again and again is game seven. He pulled fought again after mm-hmm. four innings so yeah he he made decisions that tilted the probability of his team winning that series in in his favor and in in an emotionally heightened atmosphere mm. where I, I think it can be very tempting to lose sight of logic and and reason and make a poor decision mm. in the moment or just be afraid to make a decision in the moment i think i think the mm-hmm. the easiest way managers can err in the playoffs is just being too conservative with your pitching changes and like you don't need to manage your bullpen like you have to in the regular season to get through a full season because it, it, you're just playing fewer games um this is kind of the moment you need to use all your guns you need to all the ammunition should be used if you're going to go down. And I think that he's done a good job. I also think Rob Thompson did a really good job with the Phillies too. in a lot of same ways, like I I thought he was really aggressive with his pitching decisions, uh, going to his key relievers in important moments, not, not trying to like get a starting pitcher to work through just another inning to, to make it a little bit easier for the bullpen. Like, I think you could argue that maybe Brian Snicker, uh, didn't go to his pen as quick as he maybe should have in a few games. But also at, at the end of the day, like the Phillies big hitters just stopped hitting like they previously hit. And there's only so much you can do as a manager to to outmanage for that. You still need your players to perform. But yeah, I agree. I think both both these guys um, and Luvello, if you want to um, just hit on him since he's now in the World Series, like have done a really good job. 
Yeah, like, like obviously everything I'm saying is going to have some hindsight bias too, where like mm. if he brings in relievers and like all of his relievers are, you know, <laughs> terrible, like it's not much yeah. you can do, I guess. But yeah. I, I think especially from from a personal standpoint too, there there may be more risk for yourself to make yeah. what's going to be an unpopular move if you pull that starter who is dealing after five innings and you lose the game, you're going to get annihilated mm -hmm. in the press and by fans. Yeah. And, 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 and it, when it works out for you, it's like, oh, this pitcher did such a great job. And it's like, no one really. Yeah. You, you get all the blame. You don't get a lot of the praise when it goes well. Yeah. They're going to say, yeah, if, if they even remember it at all. Yeah. Just and say some would moves. say that's your job. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. kind of the job you're hired to. You, you got to be, you got to take the criticism and you don't get much of the praise most of the time. Yeah. They're going to say it worked out in spite of you. If, <laughs> if they even remember it. So, yeah. so you might be making moves that tilt the probabilities of, uh, of your team winning in your favor, mm. but I think you're also increasing the probability that you're going to get eviscerated if you yeah. lose, <laughs> and 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 probably introduce some element of career risk that comes along with it. Mm. Although probably in this case, I think in Arizona they're largely on the same page mm -hmm. with Lavello's moves and decision making process. But I, I don't think it's I don't think these are easy moves to make, especially in such like a, a highly charged. Uh, environment yeah. like that i think probably in general like the decision and the timing of getting relievers warmed up and knowing when to put them into the game is probably significantly harder from the dugout than it might be from the couch as you're watching on tv like i'm sure everything moves a lot quicker than we imagine it does uh, when you're actually down there on the field yeah well and when it matters to like mm. <laughs> uh you know it's what's your job whereas if you're watching well, I guess yeah. it's like, you're just oh, armchair well, quarterbacking. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I do in, in this, uh, <laughs> in this situation, but that's where it, I mean, it really stands out to me. Like, like, look, he's, he's 58 years old. He played in the big leagues. He spent like a decade working, working his way up through the ranks as a minor league manager. Hmm. He was a coach on the big league staff in Toronto and in Boston for a while before he got the job in Arizona there. I think there's just going to be a tendency the longer that you work in an industry to just continue to do things a certain way because that's the way that they've always been done or because that's how you learned uh, coming up in the game. But he strikes me as someone who uh, has good baseball feel, is prepared, uh, has shown good judgment in the moment to be able to make data driven or, or you know, evidence-backed decisions that might clash with how managers operated 20 or, or even 10 years ago, but uh, ultimately puts his team, I think, in a better position to win. Yeah, well said. Well, do you have any World Series predictions? Is that something you want to do? Me and Peter made some predictions, so I feel like I've got to just make the same one here. But who do you think is going to win? Uh, do you think there's any like matchup specific comments to make about how maybe these Rangers, uh, this Rangers team and this D-backs team um, will compete? I mean, I, I hesitate to make any strong takes because like we saw, like if you just show up and you don't hit well, anything can happen. But um, I, I think on paper, the Rangers are a better team. And so I imagine they're favored, but 
I'm just looking forward to a to a fun World Series more than anything. But if I have to make a prediction, I'll say I'll say Rangers in five and be boring. I, th- I think the Rangers, yeah, I think the Rangers are the better team. The percentage chance they have of winning is probably fifty something. So like, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I, I can't really predict this small sample of a series. Maybe I'll go with the D-backs just so. Uh, yeah, keep it interesting. So so they can't say, oh, nobody. Nobody believes in us. <laughs> I, I believe in them about forty-four percent, probably. Gotcha. To, to win, so. But, okay. Cool. But I, I, I am very excited. I, I think Corbin Carroll gets all, all the attention. For rightfully so. The D-backs, yeah, yeah, rightfully so. I mean, he's uh, he's fun, man. The, yeah, he's already one of the best, one of the elite players in baseball. Like he, he seems like somebody who could win an MVP or, you know, in that top three mm. MVP finish by the end of his, uh, probably, probably maybe multiple times before the end of his career. But Gabriel Moreno was a great move Yes, for the D-backs. And it's a tough trade for the Blue Jays to mm-hmm. make because they knew, like, they knew how good he was. Like, it wasn't like, oh, the Blue Jays undervalued Gabriel Moreno. He was their number one prospect, top 10 prospect in baseball. They just had this catching log jam. Alejandro Kirk is coming off this really good year, especially offensively in the big leagues at what, like 22, 23 years old, Mm. Uh, super talented hitter, but also, you know, if, if you have to trade one guy, I would think Gabriel, even though Kirk had already proven himself to a certain extent in the big leagues, Moreno probably had more trade value just because he's such a more classic, conventional catching prospect. Kirk, you know, look, he looks the way he looks, whereas Moreno is your athletic catcher getting, you know, potential plus, if not better grades for his defense. Uh, really athletic, strong arm, quick release, you know, sub one nine pop times on on his best throws in games, and oh, also is a really, really good hitter. So um, it's a tough trade to to make, um, mm. but the D backs definitely were able to <laughs> uh, have it have it work out in their favor, and now it looks like they have a, a franchise catcher for. For the next half decade, if if not longer, he he also seems like the kind of guy who they could lock up uh, long term. Like he was not a big big bonus guy coming mm. out of Venezuela by any means. So, um, but he's he's been fun to watch too. Yeah, he has been. I mean, hitting two seventy nine, three forty five, twelve, and twelve games in the postseason, three home runs. Um, yeah, he's been he's been good. A couple of those have been absolutely massive bombs too. So. All right, that's kind of all I had on World Series. We got a few questions. You want to get into those, Ben? Yeah. Okay, so Brandon on Instagram asks, when a player is being evaluated, how much weight is placed on what they do defensively versus on offense? Um, solid question. What are, your, what are your thoughts on it? It it depends on well, – I think it just depends on the evaluator and then it depends on the player. I, I do think – so the Especially answer is it depends. For, You're welcome, Brandon. Thanks for your question. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> yeah. They, I, I think for me, especially the, the 
bat carries the most importance. Uh, but but that's not true for the way everybody looks at it. But at the same time, like e- even if we're talking about a a shortstop who's a you know phenomenal defender or a catcher in the same light you still have to believe that they're going to hit to a certain extent against major league pitching to be able to, you know, either draft them high or if it's international signing, sign them for a lot of money or, or, you know, in our case, rank them highly, whether it's on a pro prospect list or or an amateur ranking. So I, I do think the bat is the most important tool, but then it's, you know, it's it from there, it's still a sliding scale where, yeah, like I, I think this guy is a good hitter, but if if he has to go to first base, you you really have to believe a, a player is going to be a great hitter. Like that defensive, that great defender at at first base, where you think he's you know a solid hitter, lacking power, uh, but is getting tremendous reviews for his defense. Like that's that's a profile i have a hard time you know like the evan white type profile (laughs) i have a hard time uh buying into that uh but then it you know at at each you know if you're in the draft you're signing international players depending on where you are in the draft like if you're in a, a later pick or you know a lower signing bonus like yeah sure i'll take a you know i think teams are just more willing to take the chance on the guy who has you know really good tools maybe a little bit more raw uh, offensively, but, uh, you know, projects to stick at uh, shortstop and has really good actions, uh, really good defensive upside at that position, but um, has more, you know, more risk in the back because sometimes, sometimes those guys do figure it out. But um, in general, I, for me, I, I think the the bat is is the driver and, and the most important separator. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you did a good job contextualizing it. I'd just say, like, if you're a great hitter in a zero defensively, they're probably going to find a spot for you to play and to hit in a lineup. But if you're a great defender in a zero as a hitter, that's not necessarily the case, and you're much more reliant on, like, overall team quality to to actually get in the lineup there. Um, So I think, yeah, in general, we're all kind of aware that the, the hit tool is the most important uh, finding someone who can hit is, is much more difficult than finding someone who can play really good defense. But obviously adding the contextual element of it, of, of the various thresholds for different defensive positions and just the overall population of players you're competing against uh, and what they can do on average at a different defensive position matters. But I would think is as much as like 75% um, needs to be towards the offensive side, um, just as a general rule, maybe. Yeah, that's the biggest separation where you have a lot of players who are in the minor leagues right now who could defend their position at the caliber of yeah. a major league player at that there position. are a lot of gold glove glovers that that you're never going to watch in the big leagues probably yeah i mean and at the same time i still think the quality of defense is uh at a at, at a very high level in the mm-hmm. big leagues relative to you know what, what we see in the you know, go watch a low A game yeah. or a, certainly a rookie ball game. You'll, you'll see some striking <laughs> deep, uh, differences, but there are mm-hmm. players who can, you know, defend that whether it's shortstop, center field, or first base, or wherever at the yep. major league level, but not 
there are very few minor league hitters who, who are currently in the minor leagues who are ready to hit at that position mm-hmm. in the major leagues. Absolutely. Good, good question, Brennan. Thank you for saying that. We got another one from Instagram. Uh, one bad neighbor says, for both of you, who do you expect to be the high man on for the next top 100? Very interesting question. I like this one quite a bit. We all love our personal cheese balls. Um, although I guess the top 100 player by definition can't be a personal cheese ball. We need another BA term specifically for players who are high quality players. We're not really going out on a limb for them, but that we just like more than everyone. So we need to come up with that term. But Ben, do you have any obvious names that, that come up? Because I had a few immediately jump to mind. Um, none of which are surprising, I don't think at this point. But Yeah, so we... I mean, we all look at things through a different lens, obviously, at, at BA. At the same time, you know, we're sharing information and, and we all have access to, um, at least internally, a lot of the same uh, data and information and reports and things like that. So, um, and, and we have a lot of these conversations. So when you get into the top 100, it's, it's hard to have like a, there typically aren't big splits. Uh, and it's also kind of hard to say right now where, like, you know, we have a pretty significantly sized staff. So sometimes I, I might think I'm going to be the high man on somebody. And then, uh, you know, like Jeff or Kyle or you or whoever. You got to scout the staff and scout the players to do this one well, Ben. Yeah. So I, I, I think one, though, could be Cole Young, the Mariners shortstop. Uh, maybe I, I, I've just always been higher on Cole Young and yep. on that type of profile where I, I think he he's he's just very hitterish. I've always really liked his his swing, his hitting ability, and uh, I think he has a chance to stay at shortstop too. So I, I think there's a lot to like there with him. Uh hit well in low A, hit well in high A as a nineteen year old in his first season. Like I, I thought he would have been I thought he would have fit as a top 10 overall pick in that draft the Mariners got him at 21 overall so um and I think he's only gotten better since then so uh to me like he'll probably be a top 50 prospect for me um to like go through this whole process that we Hmm. are in right now with the prospect handbook and, and gathering more information and then taking a step back and look at, at the entire, uh, you know, prospect universe. But uh, he's, he's somebody who I, I think I'll probably end up being the, the high man on. Yeah, that's a good one. That's definitely on brand for you. I'll, I'll do another guy that I think is a top 50 prospect, and I'm not really sure if everyone believes that, but I think even if there are a few outliers, I'm probably going to be the highest on him, and that's uh, Jet Williams, um, Mets infielder, center fielder, I just have always loved his swing. I think he had a phenomenal year. He gets on base. He runs. He has power. Um, I just really have a lot of conviction in the hitting ability. I think he's going to be an up-the-middle player wherever he winds up. I think people are going to be surprised by the amount of juice and thump that he has. I mean, he hits the ball hard now. Um, maybe a little Corbin Carroll-ish in, in terms of just like surprising pop with a player that maybe you don't expect it because he's not this hulking physical player. But he's quite strong. He has been for a long time. I, I can't imagine doing my top 100 again. Like Ben said that we, there's the caveat of like, I haven't actually gone through this process yet and contextualize everyone and lined up 
um, my board, but it feels weird to think of him not being in a top 50 for me. And I think most people will have him in the second half of a top 100, just based on my read on, on conversations with, with some other people on, on staff. So Jet would be my first name um, that I'll go with, similar to you that kind of long been a fan of. Five foot, you're five foot six mm-hmm. uh, infielder. How much, I mean, like Corbin Carroll to me looks like somebody who could hit 30 home runs in a season. He came close this year. What did he end up with, like 25? He was pretty close. Um, mm-hmm. I think getting he was dinged up a little bit too at, at some point. So um, do, you th- do you think Chet Williams is like a 25 plus home run guy? I would think more towards like 2025 probably, but I guess it depends on how he's elevating the baseball. If he wanted to sacrifice some average in OBP to do that, like maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far with him. I just think people are selling him a little bit short in the power department. So to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred, hundred four walks. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Jumps out. It's good to have a, good to Small have a five, strike six zone. strike yeah. zone. Get the ABS going. He's going to be, Leading the league in OBP. Yeah. And he has, and, 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 you know, in addition to that, I think he just has a really good approach to patient, mm-hmm. doesn't expand yeah. the strike zone, maximizes that uh, advantage that he does yeah. have. And and that he is, yeah, I mean, he's really explosive, too. Mm-hmm. It shows up, obviously, in in the speed. It's the quickness of his, his wrist, his bat speed. It, mm-hmm. The ball really does jump off. He's, he's not like a little five six he's not a slap hitter yeah Yeah. (laughs) he's 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 up there he can do damage check out the thighs check out the thighs he's got he's he's pretty strong (laughs) yeah there are yeah it'll be you you can definitely tell like when when you see some hitters using the the challenge system in the ab with the automatic uh i cannot wait for that to become a thing there 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 are some hitters who love it because they're like if if you have a good eye for the strike zone, you know there are pitches where you're getting. Could you imagine hosed. Joey Votto an entire career with an ABS challenge system? He would have absolutely loved it. I cannot wait for that. Just like strategic element to come into play. It'll yeah, be and you'll get like leaderboards. I'm so excited like... for the leaderboards of who is the best and who is the worst. <laughs> who is like the really aggressive hitter who always expands the zone and all like has a terrible eye relative to his peers who just like people are like you are not allowed to challenge a ball strike. Yeah, you'd have to. Yeah, you'd have to think about that as a manager of like. Oh, 100 percent. It's like a green light on the bases. Like there are some some players that you let go whenever. Some players are not allowed to steal unless you're giving them the green light. Like I imagine there will be some players that like you're not going to use our challenges. <laughs> we don't we don't believe in your eye. <laughs> yeah, because you know there are going to be certain players who are not going to take a team approach or might. Be oh, 100 percent. Yeah. More willing to. Uh, take a challenge for themselves rather than save them because there are very few there are very few instances in baseball where you have to think actively like think about the team when you're hitting it's generally just like if it's good for you it's good for the team and the abs challenge system will introduce like an element that that is not that way like you you need to be cognizant of like if you miss this call you're hurting someone else potentially and like how you evaluate that and and the degree to which players are willing to defer will be very fun to see yeah, you get like emotionally charged in the heat of the moment, mm-hmm. and the and the ball is uh, in like easily like like a couple baseballs inside the strike zone, and you're like, you challenge it and you're <laughs> in a key moment. Yeah, oh, rookies man. won't be allowed to challenge. The challenges are, are are held in regard for the veterans of the team, <laughs> something like that. Or just, yeah, or just prioritized for the guys with better 
I mean, strike zone judgment. I mean, and that should and, be how it is because Corbin Carroll, I'd imagine, has one of the best batting eyes in, in baseball already, and he, he doesn't need to be deferring to anyone on that regard. Yeah, and based on the leverage of the situation, hmm, yeah, too. So, yeah, cla- be classic fun. old school uh, <laughs> <laughs> managerial decisions. All right, who, who else you got here in your uh, top so, 100? I can think of a couple guys. I don't know if they're actually going to end up in the top 100, but I think they at least merit top 100. Because I, I, I think the top 100 is going to be pretty strong mm. this year just as a collective. I hope group. so, because last year I feel like we talked a lot about how it wasn't that great. So it, it does seem like we got a lot of uh, reinforcements and a lot of players who stepped up. So I, I'm hopeful that it doesn't just thin out as I move down, but that would be awesome if it was just really strong throughout. Yeah, but, you know, one of them is Moises Ballesteros, um, who is with the Cubs, catcher, and he's kind of an unusual phrase to use, but he's in that Alejandro Kirk mold where... Fat catcher? Uh, it's, yeah, it's not the prettiest, but, um, you know, like he's listed at 5'7", 215. He can nice. really hit, though. Um, there's definitely fair concerns about the lateral agility and mobility to catch and if he doesn't catch like do you have a five seven first baseman that's kind of tough i i'm i'm at least on the optimistic side that like kirk he can make improvements and stick behind the plate because this is one of the more talented hitters in the minor leagues just really exciting combination of back control, strike zone judgment, ability to drive the ball with some impact, really hit well at two levels of A ball this year as a 19-year-old, uh, got up to double A by the end of the season. So I suspect he's going to start next year as a 20-year-old in double A. Uh, I don't see any reason why he's not going to continue to hit at double A, and I think it's going to continue to work for him moving up at higher levels too. So um He's somebody where it's like, yeah, that kind of profile is not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But I'm, like I said, uh, the bat is the most important thing for me. In his case, for it to matter, like he really has to prove that he can stick behind the plate. Uh, but I'll, I'll probably end up being one of the, the, the high guys on him. Yeah, I definitely think you're going to be higher than me on him. Uh, so that's another good one for you. I think my next guy, I'll go with a similar player who one that maybe is like a fringe top 100 type, but I'm really excited about and convicted in. Um, and that's Bryce Eldridge. I mean, he had just a phenomenal debut. I think the power and the hitting ability from the left side is significant. His exit velocities, uh, a pretty solid approach. I'm not scared away by some of the swing and miss that I think he's going to have. Like, I, I think he's the sort of player who can be an impactful hitter and still strike out at an average or slightly above average clip um, just with how often he'll get on base and how often he's going to hit the ball over the fence. Um, I really don't want him to pitch uh, because I want him to just hit. But if he pitches and looks good, then the more the merrier. You know, it's, it's fine by me. I can imagine there are going to be some people who – either are not ready to fully buy into Eldridge because it's a little bit of a riskier profile and it's not a huge professional sample just yet. Um, a high school first baseman, if you don't believe in the two-way deal with Eldridge, might be a little trickier um, to buy into without uh, getting some more 
pro data and pro results uh, under his belt for others. But I think I'm ready to just go fully in. And I think there's going to get to a point in the top 100 where there are a lot of players that I just kind of like, but no one who I really love. And like Bryce Eldridge will be sitting there looking really exciting for me and I'll want to buy into that upside. Um, so I think he'll be, he'll be a player that I'm, that I might be the highest on. Although I have less feel for the staff and where they're at on Eldridge than I feel like I do with Jet Williams. So, so we coming into the draft, you know, the Giants took him 16th overall. We had him ranked, you know, 22nd on our draft board. You know, obviously very highly regarded first round talent in a very talented draft class. What makes what makes for for you him go from you know that kind of middle middle tier of the first round type player to mm-hmm. somebody who now you're talking about already as a top 100 prospect well i think part of it is that i, I imagine i'm going to have a lot of players from this draft class on the top 100 in general like we got down a decent ways uh on this draft class already in our top 100 that's currently on the list i think that um what I'm encouraged about is just how quickly his approach seemed to translate to pro pitching. Like the fact that he got on base 40% of the time and walked as much as he did. And the, the swing decisions that he showed in the lower levels of the minors, I was encouraged about. I, I think prior to that, I had some reservations just about how advanced he was as a hitter. Um, there were the swing and miss concerns with him pre-draft. Um, but just seeing like that the approach was quite good and a, a moderately sized sample. It was 31 games and how loud the exit velocity numbers were. I'm not sure like if the EV numbers specifically changed my opinion on his raw power, but just seeing like who that put him in, in conversations with, um, as an 18 year old who has yet to fully focus on hitting, like it, it just has me drooling on his upside. So I think all of those are elements that, that have me more excited about him. And I think there are probably also some players in this draft class who um, are going to be higher than I would personally have them um, for various reasons that, that I'd push them up a little bit more. Like, I think they're, it wouldn't be surprising if I had like 12 to 15, 23 draftees on the top 100, which seems like a greater than average number. Yeah, 294, 400, four, uh, excuse me, 505 in his pro debut between two levels as an 18-year-old, you know, now swinging wood bats against pro competition. I think mm. that's based on – he was already obviously very highly guarded coming in, and then based on what he did, I, I think like, that pro <laughs> sample is, is meaningful to bump him I mean, he, a little bit more. He hits the ball on average as hard as Elijah Green does with significantly less miss and significantly less chase. So – it, that that's exciting to me <laughs> yeah um yeah I, I yeah i'm more optimistic on the <laughs> on his certainly his outcome for uh yeah making making more contact okay i got two more how many more do you have well i, I can give you another player in the uh realm of hitting the absolute crap out of the ball uh lazaro montes with the mariners is is another one who's probably in that Eldridge range for me, like him, like Ballesteros, the same way where when I go through the final process, probably like a borderline top 100 player where there is some swing and miss risk there 
certainly. Um, but he he really did cut down on that swing and miss this year from where he was last year in, in the DSL. Uh, big Mariners, international signing, both in terms of money and just being a very big human being. Um, massive power right right there, I think, with Bryce Eldridge. Go have, you know, 70, you know, if not top of the scale raw power when it's all said and done. Um, 18 or, or I guess just turned 19 years old, but played at 18 this year. Uh, 303, 440, 560 in 70 games between uh, the complex in Arizona and in low A. Um, Drew walks too. So there there are some holes in the swing. It's I think it's pretty much first base only with him, or it's going to be, uh, you know, a pretty rough, I mean, you know, left field, like we, I guess Reese Hoskins plays, you know, some corner outfield too. So like, it, it could be like that kind of defender if you keep him out there, but uh, I'm, I, I'm a big fan of the power and I think he'll hit enough to make it work. Even if he's, uh, gonna have to really mash as a likely first baseman. So uh, I'll probably, I think, end up being one of the higher, higher people on him. Okay. Uh, my next guy is uh, definitely on brand for me, um, and I think it's just a combination of. I, I think this is a player profile who a lot of people on staff are much more hesitant to get aggressive with than I am. Um, and that's a high school right-handed pitcher, and it's Dylan Lesko. I don't need to talk about how much I like Dylan Lesko, but I think for me, um, him coming off of Tommy John surgery and simply having all of the stuff that he had prior to the surgery has me still just as excited about him, and I'm I'm ready to discount the scattered control that he showed in 12 starts this year between rookie ball and high a he walked six batters per nine uh i don't think that he suddenly just forgot how to pitch i think it's just a a process of going through tommy john surgery coming back learning how to get that feel Uh, a lot of people say the the touch and feel and the command is kind of the last thing that comes once you recover from that injury so i'm willing to similar to brady house i was kind of willing to give him a mulligan for his first full pro season because of his back injury. I'm ready. To, I don't know if his house is first full pro season, but either way, the, the injury, the injured season he had, I was ready to just discount it and see what he had next year. I, I kind of think of Dylan Lesko in the same way. It's just hard for me to completely pump the brakes on a guy who was as good as he was in high school, had the sort of fastball command, change up feel devastating, pure stuff across the board. Like I still think this guy is front of the rotation upside, uh, and so I'll I'll probably be pretty high on him. And I just know that, in general, other people on our staff don't like to go super crazy with high school pitchers until they're a little bit closer, further along. Uh, and I know the TJ. Uh, I imagine a lot of people on staff will just be like, maybe a little more scared of the TJ than I am. So this is just probably being me, um, just being less risk averse uh, than some others than than anything. In addition to my my long uh, admiration of Dylan Lesko as a player. Yeah, I think it would be hard for me to be the high person in the office on any pitcher, <clears throat> unless it's unless we're talking on like a relative scale, relative yeah. to like only other 
pitchers. But but Lesko, I think in particular, is a tricky one where hmm. like you have to. You see where everything goes right for him. He's a number one starter. Yep. But he has Tommy John in what in twenty two. His pro tracker this year definitely rusty coming back, but mm. you could still see the stuff. Like yep. the stuff is there. The control certainly was not, um, and, and then some inconsistencies just like with getting the stuff back there. Sometimes too, or it might be there in flashes, but not with the same level of frequency that you would hope for. Um, but all of that also makes sense for a pitcher who's just coming back from TJ. So um, you know, I could I could see him coming back next year and having like a Jackson Job type leap. Not that Job struggled the way that uh, Lesko did uh in in 22 the, the way that lesco did this year I and mean, we had job as our number one tigers prospect coming into the year but I, th- I think he's somebody who just like really elevated his game from his like his first full season to his second one uh, i could see lesco shaking off the rust next year and making that jump but might also just have some more um conservatism with, yeah. with where I'll rank him. I'd for sure. And I think that's a, de- to you. I think that's a defendable position. Like it makes sense for me if people want to just be cautious until he comes back and proves it, um, which is fine. I just know, I mean, philosophically, I think you were, you would have been the person I thought of first and foremost, just cause you were, you were very hesitant to push pitchers at the board, which I think is the right strategy, but I just can't quit some of these high school pitchers that, that I've seen in person and have a bias towards, you know, that's, that's my flaw. I've got another Dylan too, and I don't have to spend as long because I think this is more of like a strategic choice than, than any sort of like me going out on a limb. I I think I'll still be higher on Dylan Cruz than everyone because we talked about the bulk of players who are going to rank very highly. I don't know exactly where I'm going to put Dylan Cruz, but I feel like more people are going to have him in the four to six range than I will. And this is just me guessing where people are going to have him, but I am going to stuff him. And just a quick note on how hard he hits the ball. So of players 21 and younger with 100 or more plate appearances this year, where do you think Dylan Cruz ranks in average exit velocity? I don't know. I'm just I'm thinking maybe my ne- my next answer should be Jackson Holiday if you're going to pick Dylan Cruz for. This uh, is more like I I can see everyone in the office putting him like four to six, and I'm going to probably have him top three. Will you have six. him top three? I know you're going to have Jackson Holiday. I feel like you're going to have Chorio, and I might have Dylan Cruz too. So I, I, I don't think many other people on staff are going to put Dylan Cruz too. I, I guess. I mean, like the, this, or, this these are like less these are like a, splitting hairs versus. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'll probably, but, yeah, like, I'll but probably if I'm the highest on him, arrow. I'm going to still count it. <laughs> all right, all right, fine. Yeah, all right, that's fair. No, it's it's yeah, the, yeah. the difference between like yeah one and we all know they're two, in the same tier. Two, or two and six, although I think is more yeah, it's meaningful like than like seventy two and seventy six. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But back back to the like he hits the ball so hard. There is there are two players who hit the ball harder than him of these thresholds that I said. So twenty one and younger and a hundred or more plate appearances. Oliver Carrillo. Had a ninety three point six exit velocity. We're talking uh, average exit. This velocity. is average exit velocity. Yeah, Ellie De La Cruz ninety three point four, and I think this is just minor league data. And then Dylan Cruz ninety three point three. 
more than Owen Casey, Jordan Walker, Elijah Green. Bryce Eldridge shows up pretty quickly here. James Wood, uh, Junior Caminero, Jackson Chorio, like a lot of names here that, that we really like. I, I just I think Dylan Cruz does everything. And, and of these players, like in the top 10 in this area, Cruz has significantly better contact than almost all of them, I would say. Um, so it's just, I just think Cruz is really good. Hot take, Dylan Cruz is a good player. But we can move on from that since it's it's more nitpicky. You guys heard it here first. Yeah, yeah. We like Dylan Cruz breaking the number one player in our draft board a year ago who people said was one of the best college players we've seen in a long time. You think the draft was uh, a year ago? Oh, man. Feels like 20, a year ago. 2023 draft? Ah, oh, man. That's crazy. Yeah. What was it? It wasn't even six months ago yet. Jeez. Yeah. The summer really crushes <laughs> us. <laughs> that is like, when I, like, if I'm talking to scouts, you know, like at the, you know, this time of year, September, like September, yeah. October, you're like, oh, like, how was your summer? Like every, almost every scout I talked to was like, no, like it, it sucks. <laughs> like the, the new the new draft schedule just kills yeah. us. The so. winter is when we get a break. That's when the scouts can actually get some time off. But you know, we're we're fall, we're fully into twenty twenty four mode. So twenty twenty threes are so last year. You know, we're on to the next one. You're on I to just, the twenty sixes. What are you talking I was about? Say, I just <laughs> read up fifty players for twenty five and twenty six. So I, yeah, I like come on, Jupiter. So gotta stay ahead. Yeah. So go go check out Ben's piece. That's on the site now. If you want to get a jump start on. Uh, 25 and 26 players um always good stuff i still haven't read that one yet so i'm looking forward to it that that dropped this morning i've done some work for tomorrow six seven thousand words you haven't read it yet jeez ben come on man we need to get you an editor <laughs> yeah. i kid i kid um yeah anything else you want to plug though uh, i think those are all the topics we have unless you had any more players you wanted to mention for top 100 but we appreciate the questions for everyone who sent them in yeah um yeah, ratings, reviews, always appreciated. Will uh, always boost us up, so we uh, will read it. Uh, appreciate all that. And if you have questions, I'll usually put out a uh, something on my Instagram story at uh, Ben Badler. You can send them to at Future Pro Pod anytime on Twitter. We'll check that out, uh, mm-hmm. or our email address as well. Um, it's what it's Future Projection at BaseballAmerica.com. Yep. So that's right. always good uh, to get the listener emails. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I had. Thank you guys right. for listening. Um, for Ben, I'm Carlos. We'll see you next time.